question. Are you ready to go? Absolutely. I hope I don't mess it up. I'll tell you, Laura, I always stumble over the words. in the 34th podcast. My name is Lacey Kennett. I'm the Director of Communications for the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas, and we are so glad to be back with you for another episode. And I'm Marissa Alcantar, Story Bank and Policy Specialist for the Alliance for Healthy Kansas. We hope you guys are having a great start to your summer. So we're going to start off here with a little note. If you subscribe to this podcast or follow us closely, you may have noticed This episode was a few weeks later than we normally release our episodes. We normally release them every other week, but um, our schedule's been a little off lately. So I wanted to take a minute to talk about scheduling for Health in the 34th before we jump in with today's guests. So during the legislative session, which is typically January through April, we're in the office at the state house. It makes it a little bit easier to keep a regular uh, release schedule for our podcast. Now that we've jumped into summer months and then in through the fall, our team here at the Alliance, we're doing a lot more traveling around the state. We're holding community meetings and events and things like that, um, which hopefully we'll get to see you and come to a place, a city near you. Check out our website. I'm diverging from the plan here. Check out our website, the events tab to see where we're coming. Anyway, so we usually record, edit, and release these episodes in-house. It gets a little bit trickier while we're traveling. So that's not to say that we won't be releasing episodes, but they may be further spaced out or um, come in a different schedule than usual this summer and fall as we balance recording these and talking to the amazing people that we talk to with being out there and meeting with all of you personally in person. The easiest way for you to stay up to date on the latest episodes is to subscribe to Health in the 34th wherever you get your podcasts and also follow us on social media. We'll always keep you posted there. And if you have a topic or a guest you'd like to hear from on this podcast, let us know. You can message us on any of our social media platforms or contact us. Our information is once again at expandcancare.com. Now, Marissa, do you want to tell us about today's guest and topic? Absolutely. We're excited to chat today with Laura Harker, Senior Policy Analyst at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, or CBPP. We at the Alliance work with Laura and her colleagues regularly. They're a great resource for data, information, and support, and they help us stay up to date on federal issues as well. CBPP is a nonpartisan research and policy institute that advances federal and state policies to help build a nation where everyone, regardless of income, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, zip code, immigration status, or disability status, has the resources they need to thrive and share in the nation's prosperity. So Laura is a health policy researcher and a health equity advocate with expertise in Medicaid and other state healthcare programs. She has a Bachelor of Science in Public Health from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a master's degree in health policy and management from Emory University and has served as a fellow with the Congressional Hunger Center and led a community nutrition education program at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Recently, Laura's work has looked at the effects of work requirements on programs like Medicaid, So we are so excited to talk with her more about this, especially because of how common it has become when talking about Medicaid. Let's get into it. 
But Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the Health in the 34th podcast. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the research and health policy space? Thanks for having me. I'm great. It's great to be here and talk to you all about some of my work in health policy and what to keep an eye on and Medicaid. Um, we're really trying to get all hands on deck around encouraging people to renew their Medicaid coverage to, at this point, really pay attention to the process since a lot of people are getting renewed for Medicaid for the first time since the pandemic began. Um, but I got involved in the health policy world just because of my own interest in healthcare issues growing up. I'm from a really small rural community in North Carolina, and my mom worked in hospitals, so I was constantly in hospitals and really interested in healthcare. But I also saw a lot of just disparities and differences in care and just transportation issues and getting to care in a rural community, um, people getting sicker earlier um, and not having care. So I was really interested in trying to work on those types of issues, making sure there's more equitable access to care. So that's what got me into the health policy space is just some of that personal interest, and I'm really interested in chronic disease issues and prevention um, as someone who has a public health background, thinking more about how we can keep people healthier before it gets to the point where they're sick and often in worse condition. Um, so that's some of my interests. And talking about work requirements, I think a lot of people that we talk to and a lot of people that live in Kansas would on face value think this is a good thing. Why would we not want to attach and motivate people to work to get a program like Medicaid? So I, I guess this is me asking, what is your thesis statement or what is the thesis statement about work requirements and Medicaid? I would say that really when people hear work requirements, they should be thinking about red tape because that's really what it is. It's not incentivizing anyone to work more or work more hours or to increase their participation in the workforce. We've seen that in many programs, Medicaid, we saw that in Arkansas, that's the only state that's actually done this in Medicaid, but even in food stamp SNAP program um, and cash assistance, it's not in impacting people's employment. And we see that people already have that incentive to work. They have bills to pay. Uh, they need to work in order to make ends meet. And it's not their fault that they don't make enough money to make those ends meet. It's a system where wages are not high enough for many of these workers. Um, we're talking about folks working in retail, restaurants. We even have child care workers that fall in this coverage gap that we talk about. Um, health, home health workers, which is a growing workforce, as we see people aging, uh, many people who just aren't making enough, um, and they are working and they do subscribe to that same philosophy and, and motto there in Kansas of working hard and, and believe in that and try to do that. But they just have so many other barriers that make it harder for them to either work more or to move into higher paying positions. But even then, we still need those folks to work in these jobs. So we really need to talk more about how do we increase wages? How do we focus more on getting people higher pay? Um, and that should be really where the focus is. The work requirement or work reporting requirement is really what we call it. It's really just that. It's just a reporting extra paperwork issue. It's requiring people who are already working, who are already taking care of people, have so much going on in their lives because of the stress of not having enough money 
that now they have to do yet another thing, submit more paperwork every single month, go online, call the offices, wait on the phone for an hour. It's just another barrier in people's lives when they have so much going on and stress and anxiety already. So that's what I think people should think about. It's red tape. It's a paperwork issue. It's not really about working. And if we care about workers, we should invest in them having higher wages and better quality work as well. Yeah, because the data just isn't there to support it. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Across programs, we've seen that in people in focus groups, especially Arkansas, where I focus more. I'm not as familiar with all the evidence for the other programs, SNAP and TANF, but definitely in the Arkansas experiments that didn't last very long. Um, People just talked about how they either already were working and had enough pressure to work, or they also had other life events like, you know, a family member got sick and now I have to quit working, sometimes temporarily, or they got hurt on the job and now need to take care of themselves. And now they show up at the doctor and don't have insurance one day. And But that kind of just creates that vicious cycle where you're sick, you can't get the care you need, now you can't work. And um, it really goes against the whole premise of supporting people and, and working and contributing the way that most folks do want to do, but may face a lot of barriers in doing so. So Laura, I personally have been uh, really fascinated by what has gone on in Arkansas in regards to work requirements for Medicaid. So can we talk a little bit about the research that has come out of states where these kinds of requirements have been implemented? Prior to the Trump administration, work requirements have been considered and rejected, but then beginning in uh, 2017, the administration approved 13 states' requests to use the Medicaid Section 1115 waiver to take coverage away from people not meeting certain work requirements. And ultimately, quite a few of those requests never came to fruition because of court cases challenging them or the state deciding not to move forward. But we do have data from a few states um, right now. Can you tell us more about what we saw in those states? Sure. So Arkansas is one example, just because they actually were the only state to take coverage away from people who didn't meet a requirement. So we also have data from New Hampshire and Michigan who were about to move forward with their work reporting requirement added to Medicaid, but they've either vacated that policy or a court had it suspended. Those states also showed that um, in New Hampshire, for example, 40% of the people who were subject or would have been subject to the requirement would have lost coverage. And in Michigan, one third of those um, who were going to be subject would have lost coverage. So about 80,000 people. So a lot of people, even in states that were about to um, move forward would have lost coverage. In Arkansas, we saw in practice, they had nearly one in four people actually lose their coverage, about 18,000 people. And that was in the first seven months of the requirement being in effect. And that I think is one of the the big top lines is that work requirements really do are more about getting people off the program. It's about cutting Medicaid is the real motive here. I think there's often the discussion that this is about promoting work, but really it's just about getting cutting the program that we know is so important for folks. Medicaid is the single largest source of health coverage in this country. It's a huge uh, foundation in the healthcare system, especially for many of the people who don't get health insurance through their jobs or otherwise would not be able to get any health care without this crucial Medicaid program. Um, so it's really about undercutting that vital safety net and the health programs that we've built. 
over many years as we've expanded coverage and seen so much success in the expansion of coverage in terms of people not delaying care, getting care, and not until it gets worse and they're in the emergency room. So that's one big piece. It's really work requirements are just a way to undercut those valuable programs like Medicaid. Another piece I think that we saw in Arkansas was just the way that exemptions were structured. I think when we hear about work requirements, sometimes we hear proponents say, well, we can just exempt certain groups that we feel are important to exempt. So people with disabilities or parents or people who are seeking treatment for certain conditions. And it sounds good in theory, but really exemptions don't work. There's always going to be and has been in Arkansas. When we saw that that state move forward, people were falling through the cracks, including people with disabilities. Some of the providers um, in Arkansas talked about patients that they had with disabilities who lost coverage. And I think that's something that people may not think about either is that there's this view about disability and the way Medicaid treats disability is based on the participation in one federal program, the Supplemental Security Income Program, but there's many other different types of disabilities that may not qualify for that program or they may not have gone through the process. And also you have people who have chronic illnesses too that uh, may not be able to work as many hours or may have temporary or long-term challenges with working. So that was something we saw in Arkansas where some of those folks lost coverage and talked about, you know, one person talked about having a seizure and being in the hospital. They got into the hospital, they had Medicaid coverage, so they were able to get treatment. And then they had the next day after their seizure, um, their Medicaid coverage was cut off. So then they had to pay out of pocket for everything and had this huge surprise. Um, and a lot of people talked about going to pick up their prescriptions and finding out they didn't have coverage and now not being able to take the medicines they need to take at that time they needed it that day um, and facing worse health and getting sicker as a result. And a lot of the times those were people that um, either most of the times didn't know about the policy. Uh, that was a big thing. There's a lot hard to get outreach and education about it. Um, but also there's a lot of issues with the reporting itself in terms of whether people have access to the online account, know how to set it up, um, if they have internet access in the first place, which that was also a big issue in Arkansas in many of the rural communities. Um, also the phone option that was often you know, waiting hour or more on the phone. And that's something that was a not only a waste of time for people who are already working and have all these other pressures in life, but also for folks who had data plans that, you know, they couldn't use all that data in, or minutes, um, which for a lower income population and the focus groups found that more people were in that position. Um, so there's just a lot of things about the way the program was set up that made it harder for folks, especially the groups that we're talking about, lower income individuals and families who don't have the resources or the help to get through all of these hoops. And there's board game actually that we included in our piece on this issue or that we will be including um, that shows just all the hoops that people had to jump through to get to, through to actually report hours and to keep their coverage. Like a physical board game? It's a printout. Um, maybe you can include it in the show notes or something. Um, yeah. 
I kind of want to play it. A game I think would be really like a really good way to like get people a little bit more engaged and get more of that information out there because sometimes, you know, presentations just don't cut it. So <laughs> yeah, it is hard to explain all the different barriers and people may be thinking, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You just go online and put in your hours, but you have to think about all the things, all the scenarios, I guess to your point about it being nuanced um, of what folks are dealing with. So this yeah, is I think a- having it laid out in the game was kind of cool. This is really cool. Or no, 2019. Yeah, this is, thank you for sharing this. This is really interesting to look at. Many adults, I would venture to say most adults probably have had an experience with the DMV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we all know the jokes about the Waiting DMV. There forever. Yeah. Um, and that is what, once every four years? I don't know how often you have to renew your driver's license, but yeah, uh, that's not even that often. So um, I think most people, if you think of it that way, but you have to go through that to go to the doctor and not go into massive medical debt um, mm-hmm. is maybe how we should frame that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good example. Because I know someone was talking about some other government systems just generally. I think someone was talking about the IRS and how much people don't like <laughs> dealing with the IRS, <laughs> but it's a little different, I guess. From But still, I think government and bureaucracy, people are kind of like, Ugh. so... Your research at CVPP and the data from other states have shown that adding work requirements does not increase employment for those participating in programs like Medicaid, but what it does do is take away coverage from people who need it the most, including individuals with disabilities, like you mentioned. So I think for the average person, you assume that someone with a disability has access to health insurance through Medicaid, but that's not always the case, kind of like you said. Uh, the system relies on one form of that, the SSI, which I won't pretend to know a lot about, but um, I think there's a tendency to think about it as like either you have a disability or you do not. And it's just, that's just not how it works out in regular life. So I want to quote one of the reports that you did in April and then ask you a question about it. So the report says, quote, work requirements also take an outdated approach to disability. They make assumptions about who is, quote unquote, able-bodied and don't adequately acknowledge the different types of disability or illness that may affect people's ability to work, work a minimum number of hours, or to secure a health-related exemption if one is available, end quote. Can you talk to us more about what you mean, and I don't like this phrase, but quote unquote, able-bodied people and how this can affect a group of people with disabilities. Yeah, I can go a little bit more into that. I think that I also am not a fan of the term able-bodied because I think it doesn't really, it creates a hard line on who can Mm -hmm. work and who can or who's contributing and who's not. And I think just for Medicaid, I think building off some of what I said before about just how Medicaid determines who has a disability, um, looking at who receives the SSI benefits um, and Medicaid, we know that six out of 10 non-elderly adults with disabilities enrolled in Medicaid don't have SSI. So it's a pretty, it's most of the folks um, that we know have some type of disability have reported such 
qualified for some other reason other than having SSI and even disability, federal disability benefits are not easy to obtain. It can take a long time. There's a, a process that goes with that um, that can also be challenging. And I think with just understanding more about disability today, we understand more about the quote unquote invisible types of disabilities. Mm -hmm. We understand more about mental health and, and illness and, and the ways that even chronic illnesses have an impact on people's ability to work as well, um, in addition to disabilities. And in Arkansas, I think we saw just also how the processes that were supposed to be safeguarding folks from getting uh, kicked off of coverage didn't really work. And they had a, quite a few safeguards in place. They had the exemption process uh, for folks who identified as they quoted as medically frail determination. Mm -hmm. um, so that was one option for people to identify with. They also had some more temporary accommodations as they called them uh, that they could provide for people who may have had issues with getting through the online forms, for example, if they had a vision, a blindness or vision issues, they may have some accommodation um, to help, you know, an audio option or something to help them get through the process. Um, so there were some types of exemptions and accommodations like that, but we saw a lot of people weren't aware of those exemptions or requests that they could make, not very many people. Um, were able to make those requests. Um, and of those who did make requests around those issues, around having a disability or a chronic issue, a, a third of those requests were related to disabilities or serious health issues. So I think that just pointed to the fact that even after all of this cascade of trying to catch people, there were still folks at that last point of, of the accommodations request, which was kind of on the ladder at the end still had disabilities and serious health issues that prevented them from meeting their requirement. And so that's something that I think we talk about work reporting requirements and exempting folks, but it's a lot of issues with actually getting and capturing everyone. Um, and then also just the additional stress and paperwork on individuals generally. Um, it just doesn't work. The exemptions just don't work. Uh, it just seems like a good idea in theory that then when you try to practically play it out with all of these people who are relying on this, like it just doesn't work. And I feel like that's kind of what you're describing in Arkansas. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is something we saw. It's like the question of why are we punishing the majority of people who have some or either are working or at home taking care of family members going to school are disabled that's the majority of the folks and we're trying to target folks who we feel like are not working because they don't want to that's I don't know anyone in that position but if there are any it's super small um, the data that we have about people enrolled in Medicaid, uh, adults, non-elderly adults, only about 9% are either they're retired, they could not find work, or for some other reason are not in the workforce. Um, otherwise, everyone was working at throughout the whole year, part of the year, they were had a disability or serious illness, they were a caregiver for a child or another relative, or they were in school full-time. 
So that small 9%, some of those may be retired, some may have barriers to work, which is where we think the focus should be. It's such a small group of people that may not be working, but for those who are not working, it's usually because they have some barrier, um, like they have transportation issues and getting to work. We heard about that in Arkansas was a big one because they did try to increase some services in Arkansas through the Workforce Development Agency. But people talked about not being able to get to the offices since they weren't in every area yeah. to get support. There's also just issues with finding employment in some communities generally as jobs leave mm-hmm. certain areas, especially rural areas, um, and then also just people in and out of work uh, for various reasons. So it's such a small number of people that you're you're punishing the larger group of folks who are going to be impacted by the paperwork issue. Um, to try to find this very small or almost non-existent group of people who are not working mm-hmm. just because they don't want to work. Um, so it's really, yeah, an issue. Kind of changing gears here. I think it's also important to talk about the false assumptions that are behind some of the push for work requirements for programs like this. So I'm going to quote from your report again, because that's what I like to do. Um, so <laughs> Uh, Quote, these proposals make false assumptions rooted in stereotypes based on race, gender, disability status, and class about people who use economic security and health programs. Common tropes used during debates over the 1996 law that created TANF to argue for those requirements, that women, especially Black women with little or no income, are lazy and must be forced to work have an unsettling historical lineage traceable back to slavery. In reality, Black women have the highest labor force participation rate among adult women, and Black, Asian, and Latina women work at higher rates than white women. So can you, end quote, so can you talk to us a little more about this statement and these assumptions in the historical context and and that part of your report? Yes, work requirements are really based on assumptions more than they are on the data and the reality that we've seen and just the fact that they are a failed policy, they don't increase actual incentive to work or hours or participation in the workforce, and they just add more stress and complication to people's lives. So really, the question is, okay, if the data is saying that this isn't really achieving the goals, why are we still talking about this? And I think that's where the conversation about understanding the underlying assumptions and the history behind the just long arc and conversation around work requirements that we've seen as in all the safety net and benefit programs that we have in this country is really just the narrative that certain groups of people are not deserving of assistance to meet their basic needs And in America, in a country that has really been built around a system of race and class and and hierarchies, um, we see that people of color, Black people especially, have been, um, as part of the assumptions around work requirements, been painted as a reason for this uh, needed issue or work requirements being needed in terms of painting Black people and Brown people as not participating and contributing and therefore needing to be compelled to work. And I think that also ties back to some of the arguments around slavery and that people, Black people needed to be, they needed to work, they needed to be able to support and build this country without any reward. And that is really building off of that legacy, some of the backlash when slavery ended of 
white people feeling like, okay, now we have no workforce. So how are we going to compel these folks to keep working? Um, so that really is some a longer term piece, an arc of this um, issue. And it's not true, I think is what we are also trying to say in the yeah. report. Um, yeah. Black people and women also, I think gender is a piece too, that many women are in some of the jobs that I was talking about earlier, like home health work, childcare work, mm -hmm. other jobs that are not high paying jobs that do have to get Medicaid for themselves or their children because they aren't paid enough. And there is that gender or wage gap um, along gender lines. Um, so that race, class, gender, all of those um, impacts, uh, how it impacts people's lives today, why they are more likely to be people of color and women, especially more likely to be enrolled in Medicaid or to have enrolled in other programs to help them meet their basic needs. And really, I think that's um, the underlying assumptions that we need to change is that um, it's not about people not wanting to work or being lazy or Black people or women not participating because we know that they are, and often more so, um, mm -hmm. often because they mm -hmm. do have that, that need to meet their needs of their families um, because of the economic conditions and just the disparities in income and wealth. They have to work more and often do work more. So that's not really the main issue here. It's really about how do we make it easier to help those folks to um, get the programs that they need to meet their basic needs and to also invest in, in helping them build wealth and build the income and close those income gaps as well. I know that for many people, this is perhaps uncomfortable to think about and to talk about, but I just think it's so important that we do. And the gender piece, I'm glad you said that too, because you're right. A lot of the more domestic caregiving tasks that aren't valued monetarily as much are the people in this population. That piece, just the work itself, and then also the need to step away. Sometimes women are more likely to be the ones that step mm -hmm. away from work temporarily or for a longer term period to take care of children or relatives, especially at the aging population um, mm -hmm. as well. And that is something that we've seen as a barrier too, is for folks that may need to take care of their children. They don't have maybe access to childcare. We know that it's expensive. It's not always accessible. There are a lot of childcare deserts. Um, Ooh, and yeah. so those are some things as well that make it harder for folks who are trying to make ends meet, but have other needs in their family as well. I think there's two main articles of yours that we're kind of basing this off of, so we'll definitely put those in the show notes, but I would encourage everybody to go and read them in full. So Laura, I'm going to pivot a little bit. Research from the University of Kansas shows that nearly 1 million people, or roughly a third of Kansas's population, lives in rural areas of the state. Um, so can you talk to us more about the role Medicaid plays in rural communities, especially in regards to the work requirements that we've been talking about? Yes, with Medicaid, I think it's really critical in rural communities because of just the data that we know about just how much Medicaid provides coverage to folks who otherwise wouldn't have it. 
especially in rural communities, we see higher rates of coverage through Medicaid. We also see higher uninsured rates, but Medicaid does help to make that not as bad. We still need to expand Medicaid, of course, to reduce those uninsured rates in rural communities. Uh, that would make a big difference, especially for adults. But Medicaid currently does cover many children, people with disabilities, some parents, and it's really crucial for those communities, especially as we see population declines in those communities. We see hospitals struggling to stay open um, as people may come in without insurance or other reasons why they aren't able to pay for care. Um, they don't have as much of a population of folks with private insurance. They're really relying more on public funds and money to stay afloat. And then also just, of course, the job opportunities in rural communities may not pay as much or may not be as available. So you see a lot more people who don't earn enough money to get private coverage or don't have an offer through their job where Medicaid fills that gap for them. And I think with the work requirement, if it was added to the program, it would be really hard on rural communities. I think we saw that in Arkansas, especially um, just how challenging it was for folks to report their hours due to many issues. There are some technical barriers um, like the online access issues, whether that's broadband mm -hmm. access mm -hmm. or older folks um, that may not know how to use the computer, may not want to use the computer. There were some people talking about that. And by older, I, I mean probably 50s up to 64 is what we're talking about for Medicaid expansion or Medicaid um, but some of the focus groups, uh, there was a daughter, I think she was in her 20s, and she had a mother in like her late 50s who did not want to use the computer, didn't want to do anything online. Um, so, and then Arkansas at first, online was the only option to mm -hmm. report your hours. They later added the phone option, um, but she just talked about how that was a challenge. And most folks that did successfully report talked about how they had a pastor or a pharmacist or a friend, someone that had to help them through. So if you didn't have someone consistently every month where you could go use their computer or could walk you through, there were challenges there. And I think in rural communities, I think we saw that, especially with the um, just the lack of internet access, um, some people not able to use or not as familiar with computer skills, um, but also transportation was an issue in terms of either getting to the agency office for any needs that they may have or the employment agency's office. And I think the work reporting requirements just create that additional barrier for folks in rural communities that are already facing challenges in, in many of these areas. And also just outreach is harder, I think, in, in some of the smaller communities where people are more spread out. And it takes a lot more time. You have to have more of that word of mouth. You can't just like put something in the newspaper or on the news or texting. There's different strategies that may work better in some smaller communities. But still, even then, we saw a lot of the outreach, even though it was a lot in Arkansas, did not really reach everyone. It just takes a lot to do that and just adds unnecessary cost and component of having to do all of that for people to keep coverage. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like what we're seeing, and we'll talk more about the unwinding in a minute, but it's like we're seeing that. Um, I imagine it would play out pretty similarly, trying to get the word out about, hey, now you have to report this, this, and this, and and you can put it on the news and social media all you want, and there will be <laughs> a large group of people that don't see it still. I need our legislators to really hear your point, Laura, about 
how Medicaid expansion is going to be something that really helps these rural communities. I need them to focus on that piece so badly because a lot of our legislators really focus on our rural communities. It's a big part of that. And a lot of our members come from those rural communities and yet Medicaid expansion is not something that they even want to talk about. And it's so frustrating. Yes, it would bring so much more federal money to the hospitals to support them. But of course, most importantly, it's just the people that would gain access that they don't have otherwise. Um, Even in the private insurance market, the premiums may be higher in rural communities on the market. And some people get subsidies, most do, but you know, there's already the higher healthcare costs, lack of healthcare access that Medicaid expansion would be able to fill that that hole for folks to have them have coverage without a premium, without co-pays or small co-payments so that they can get care without worrying about the costs. Part of what I love about being a Kansan and that Kansas Nice is we did a focus group a year and a half ago now. We were asking the people, you know, what do they worry about in regards to health in Kansas? And even those that were located in the most um, urban and suburban communities like Topeka, Kansas City, Wichita, were very concerned about the health of rural Kansas because we all just know how important it is. So even if you don't live in a rural area, you probably have family that does, or you just recognize how critical it is to the identity and the health of the state. So um, rural rural hospitals are important for even those who don't live in those communities. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Oh, and I, I think that, that was also a piece that was strong in North Carolina, which is a state that just recently passed legislation to yeah. Medicaid after a long time. <laughs> so Congratulations to them. We are jealous. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so they still have to pass their budget to officially implement it. And we're not sure when people start getting coverage, but it's been a huge shift in bipartisan support. Um, public support, because I think we do know that there already is bipartisan support, but legislators speaking publicly about rural hospitals, about stories that they've heard from parents um, who are working and having not able to get coverage. Maybe their kids have coverage, but they can't. But I think the rural hospital argument and rural communities and investing dollars that we could bring down from the federal government can go into those communities to keep them, those hospitals from closing. Dear North Carolina legislators, if you want to be in our podcast, info at expandcancare.com. We would love to have you to talk about this. The number one argument against Medicaid expansion is that it will cost the state too much money. But anytime you can get some of them, at least, to theoretically talk about it, when asked about Medicaid expansion, he the only way that I would support it is if there were enough work requirements. Mm. And so to me, there's this disconnect. We don't want it to cost our state too much money, but if we do it, we want all of these reporting requirements that will presumably cost the state a lot of money. Can you talk about that, about the impact to the state to institute work reporting requirements. 
Yes, work reporting requirements add just another cost to think about to the Medicaid program that doesn't do anything to actually meet the goals. So it's really something that we've seen states spend millions of dollars on in some cases. Arkansas, between 2016 and 2018, had put almost $25 million just into the reporting requirement system and those types of updates, IT updates, providing accommodations for folks since that's required under federal law, like the Americans with Disabilities Act and other federal pieces require those components to be met, updating systems, hiring more workers if needed to be on the phone lines or to manage the accounts and keep up with all of those systems. It's a lot of additional expense for states just on the administrative side. And we also saw even in Kentucky where they didn't actually implement the requirements, they spent almost $100 million in that same 2016 to 2018 time period. They didn't even get to the point of implementation. It was a lot of just the setup, the IT, the all the other pieces, changing the eligibility uh, guidance and training the workers and all of those pieces that are just an additional cost that doesn't really meet the, the stated goals. So I think for those who are concerned about costs of expansion, I think it's also to think important to think about the return that you get. Yeah. And also just the fact that most of the costs, of course, are covered by the federal government, 90% of the costs. And there's also that additional money that was put forward in the American Rescue Plan for states that they can use to invest in other priorities around health. Um, I know that North Carolina is considering investments around mental health with some of that, what they're calling bonus money or signing bonus mm -hmm. um, money. And I think that is just a boost on top of the benefits that we've already seen in terms of state budgets and the budgets have been able to handle this increase in the enrollment in Medicaid because of that high federal match, but also just the impacts of people getting covered in terms of the economic benefits, the reduction in the care that's not paid for currently, um, and that's been able to save hospitals money, save the state some money and programs that they may have in place to take care of people who are currently uninsured. We've even seen savings in areas like the corrections budgets in states mm -hmm. um, as folks, as we pay for healthcare in those systems or in the behavioral health system as well. There's been savings in programs that are were state funded only, but now you can have some Medicaid federal money to help support that as well. So the work requirements would not help any of the uh, issue around cost concerns. It would just add an even higher cost to the bottom line of getting people covered. And that takes away from investing in the communities. Yeah, let's not spend extra money on red tape. Exactly. Oh, spend it on mental work. health. We all need it, I think, <laughs> after mm. the last three years. Mm. Yes. <laughs> um, so, Laura, I think we made it to our last question for you. But um, as you know, the unwinding of Medicaid progresses throughout the country, and millions of people are losing their health coverage right now. But in Kansas, because we haven't expanded our Medicaid program, that loss feels even heavier because many of those people who are losing their coverage will have no option for affordable health coverage in the state. And we've talked with state partners about the situation in Kansas, but what can you tell us about the latest on the Medicaid redeterminations from a more macro view? Sure, we're getting some data in now from states, including Kansas, which I did look at some data that was put out yesterday from KFF, the Kaiser Family Foundation 
And uh, they really are looking at not just how many people were disenrolled or had their coverage terminated, but also the reasons behind that. And I think we at CBPP and other advocates are really most concerned about people who are losing their coverage for what we're calling procedural issues. So those can be reasons like not completing the application renewal packet, not getting that information, maybe your contact information changed, maybe you had challenges in completing your renewal. Um, so all of those issues, more of the paperwork issues, back to that issue of paperwork and, and red tape, I think we're seeing a lot of folks that are losing coverage, not because they necessarily are no longer eligible, which we are seeing that as well, which is um, within the guidance and the eligibility that we already have, but we have folks that may be eligible. We just don't know that, but they, for some reason, for various reasons, the paperwork was not completed. And so in Kansas, I know since as of yesterday's update, about 50,000 people have been disenrolled from coverage. About 70% of those, uh, out of those total that were renewed, uh, about 70% were disenrolled. So that's that 50,000. Um, so about 30%, they were disenrolled for other reasons, like they their income increased or they're now aged out um, of the Medicaid program or for some other reasons, their eligibility changed. Maybe they're no longer in the postpartum period, more eligibility issues, but most are being disenrolled for the paperwork issues. Um, and in Kansas, they actually, Kansas is the highest uh, percentage of disenrollment for paperwork issues right now of the state. So we have, not all the states have not reported yet. Um, but that is something that one raises some uh, importance and really uh, emphasis on calling everyone to action, all hands on deck of making sure that we're doing as much as we can to try to reach out to folks. It's hard. It takes time. But these are folks that may not have even got contacted about this. Um, and it's going to take time to get the word out and to help folks as well as provide assistance to people in completing their packets. Um, so that's one piece is just really building on some of the work that we have done and continuing to get the word out through platforms like this. If you know someone in Medicaid or you are enrolled in Medicaid, make sure to pay attention to or look and see if you got a letter. If not, make sure you can call the agency or update your addresses so that you're getting these contacts. And, and there's probably organizations you can point to that you can reach out to in Kansas um, to get assistance with that, but just getting the word out generally that people know, because it's been three years, it's been a long time uh, since mm -hmm. people have had to renew for most of folks. So it's a new um, big change. Um, but I think also there's been some efforts at the, from the more macro view um, from the federal Medicaid agency to try to make it easier for states to help reinstate folks who may have lost coverage for paperwork issues. Um, I know the agency put out some guidance a few days ago to allow states more flexibilities to do things like reinstate eligibility um, effective back to the day determination if they do get contact within that 90 days. So it gives you a little bit longer window to still try to do some additional contact and touch points with folks to try to get them reinstated. And then also they're looking at designating pharmacies or providers, healthcare providers, hospitals to help with the process of reinstating coverage. And so states can look at some of those flexibilities and we encourage states to do that, especially with Kansas having such a large number of folks with the paperwork reasons for disenrollment to look at some ways that the state and can also support the larger outreach efforts um, to make sure people can get reinstated if they are still eligible. 
Uh, unwinding is a good phrase for it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yes, thank you. Um, this is me. incredibly helpful. And um, I know that as um, our next legislative session approaches, the 2024 legislative session, um, I'm sure that there will be more and more conversations about work reporting requirements mm-hmm. um, because I think, you know, as more states adopt expansion like South Dakota, like North Carolina, um, I think the pressure builds here as it should. Uh, and there will be lots of conversations about options like this. So thank you so much for all of your work and bringing to the attention how things work out in reality versus how we think they might work out. Um, yes. We appreciate that. No more paperwork. Is this the bottom no. line? Paperwork requirement is really what it is. No Nobody right. wants paperwork. No more paperwork. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. That was our conversation with Laura Harker from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities. So we're going to put links to the reports and the analysis and the the things that we talked about in the show notes. So if you're interested in checking those out, you can find them there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Health on the 34th. And as always, you can find us anytime at expandcancare.com on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. Our handle is at expandcancare. We'll see you again next time. Forth is a podcast from the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share our podcast with others. Episodes written and produced by Marissa Alcatar and Lacey Kennett. Episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join the movement and get involved. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. For more information on the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas, visit us at expandcancare.com.